Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. If you follow me on uh, Instagram or uh, Twitter, you'll know that uh, I was in Boston with a few of our staff members uh, this past week for a couple days. We actually have three church planters uh, that have planted churches in the Boston area over the last few years. And uh, we're actually working with the North American Mission Board to uh, not only plant more churches in Boston, um, but also to take missions teams up there for the next five years. We have an official partnership. And there's a picture uh, of me with um, the, the, our three guys. Uh, the guy to uh, my far left is um, Josh Wyatt, who actually grew up here at Westridge, was in our high school ministry in the late 90s, early 2000s, went to Liberty University, left, went and planted a church, and then another church. And he has uh, a church right outside of downtown Boston that, quite honestly, uh, is probably the most multi-ethnic, diverse church that I have ever seen. And uh, one of the other guys just planted a church this past summer and has over 200 people meeting in it already, which is quite is just absolutely unheard of in the city of Boston. And I don't know if you've ever been to that city before, but it really is a cool town and, because as you walk around the city, as you know, um, much of our nation's history is all around you. I mean, you walk to the Boston Harbor and you realize this is where the Boston Tea Party happened. Or you go to, you can see Bunker Hill, which is the end of the Freedom Walk. Or, you know, you go into where Paul Revere rode through a courtyard and, and you know, was looking at the steeple of the Old North Church to see, you know, was one light or two lights. And he was going to report to uh, John Hancock and Samuel Adams uh, what the intentions of the British were. And some of you are thinking right now, wait a minute, I thought Samuel Adams made beer. He was actually an p- important part of our nation's history, not because of beer. However, you also realize that so much of our nation's spiritual history is a part of that town as well. And you can walk through Boston Common, and, uh, which is, I'll show a picture of that, and you, you, just, you can see plaques, and you realize as you're walking through that, that you're actually in the nation's oldest park, which was uh, founded in in 1634, and that's the, uh, the state capitol building of Massachusetts. But what you probably don't realize, because there's no plaques that talk about that, this, is that that very same grass field that I'm showing you on the screen right now is where George Whitfield came over from England as an evangelist, and he came as a result of the prayers of a few, uh, few people who were praying fervently for a spiritual awakening to happen in our nation at the time. And he came and he preached in that park to over 24,000 people, and thousands of people gave their lives to Christ in 1740. And it was the birth, of, it was the, really the, the beginning of the, our nation's first great spiritual awakening. And then you walk um, to another part of town, and you can walk through Harvard University, and you realize that not only are you standing on the grounds of our nation's oldest college, which was started in 1636, but what you don't maybe know is that Harvard was actually started to train ministers to preach the Bible into all of the, the new colonies that were being formed all over the United States. And you probably also don't know as you're standing there, because the plaque is hidden behind a tree, that... In 1640, George Whitfield, the same guy who preached in Boston Common, actually preached to over 7,000 people in Boston Yard, preached to students, teachers, and surrounding residents, and, and hundreds of people came to Christ right there in Harvard Yard. And today, what's so amazing as you're walking around Boston, you also might not know that Boston is the third most unreached city for Christ in America. And although you see all these beautiful old churches and you see, you know, these, these, this amazing city, what, what 
you also see is that these churches are empty. And most of them are spiritually dead. And only a handful of them actually preach God's word. Matter of fact, uh, as you're standing in Boston Common, if you look over across the road there, you'll see that our nation's first Episcopal church, which decided a few years ago to take the cross off the front of the building because the cross was no longer relevant, and they decided to replace it with the, the Nautilus because in their minds, faith is always evolving and growing and changing. See, listen, when the cross is gone, the Spirit of God is gone. You say, how does something like that happen? How, how does not only a city but a nation, how do things continue to happen like that? Well, in the case of Boston, slowly over time, pastors begin to drift away from preaching God's word. Colleges slowly begin to shift towards embracing a secular mindset. Secularists begin to to push Christianity not only out of our colleges but out of our government and out of our major cities and even out of our churches. And you might ask the question, well, where has all of that taken us? Well, if you were to pick up the newspaper on any given day over the last several months, you're going to read all, all kinds of things. You're going to read about terrorist activity, even in our own nation, most recently in San Bernardino, California. Or you read of racial unrest and violence, most recently in Chicago, where there was a cover-up of a, of a young man that was, was shot. I mean, you, you, you realize that we're now a nation where killing the unborn is now accepted and even ignored. Or you, you realize that God's definition of marriage is constantly being altered. And then you look around the world and you see places like Syria and, and Iraq in complete disarray, resulting in over 7 million refu- refugees having to flee from these countries. And you hear of Islamic terrorist groups like ISIS and, and Hoko Baram where women are being raped and girls are being sold into sex slavery, and Christians are being beheaded, and you see on TV just even some of the recent terrorist attacks that that have happened in places like Paris and other foreign cities. And we read of of a Russian airliner in October that was taking off out of Egypt and blew up in midair, killing 700 people. And you look at all of that, and you ask, why? Whose fault is this? How did our nation and our world get to such a dark place? Well, as easy as it would be for us to point fingers and play the blame game, which really, quite honestly, never gets us to anywhere productive, here's the truth of the matter. Here's a quote from Ronnie Floyd. We are where we are in America and in the world because so many people are spiritually lost and in deep need of the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. That's a fact. That is a fact. Spin it any way you want. There is absolutely no other answer that makes any sense. We are where we are in America and in the world because so many people are spiritually lost and in deep need of the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. But here's another fact. God is still on the throne, and he is still at work in in the lives of, of people all over the world continuing to redeem our country and our world through the message of Jesus Christ. And some of you may be sitting here thinking, how can you be so sure of this, Brian? Well, in John chapter 1, John, through the Bible, makes an announcement. And here's what it says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And was he was in the beginning with God. He's announcing Jesus. And all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And in him was life, and life was the light of men, and light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, 
but came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone who is coming into the world. So as a result of darkness of sin that exists in our world today, not only today, but throughout the ages, the Bible tells us that God sent Jesus into the world to be his light. Over 700 years before Jesus was actually born, God told the prophet of Isaiah to make an announcement to the nation of Israel that a light was coming into the world that would not only lead the people out of Israel out of darkness, but it would serve as a light to the Gentiles, that God was bringing salvation to the ends of the earth. And then you fast forward 700 plus years to the New Testament, and in Luke chapter 2, you see Joseph and Mary walking into a temple in Jerusalem. And you see, you're introduced to a man by the name of Simeon who takes Jesus into his arms and he says this, I can now die in peace, Lord, as you promised me. I have seen the Savior you have given to all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations and he is the glory of your people Israel. With Jesus in his arms, Simeon announces to the world that God has now made good on his promise to Israel and the world. He has sent his light into the world, and that, world, that light would reveal God to the nations that a Savior has been born for all people all over the world. Here's how the Apostle Paul describes Jesus. He said he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Here's how the writer of Jesus describes Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. See, the people of the Old Testament and the New Testament were very aware that God was going to send a light into the world. But what he actually did was he sent a reflection of himself. He sent a living light that would radiate his glory to all of mankind. In other words, Jesus is the light of God. No other person can claim that title. No other, no other person that has ever walked the face of the earth can actually call themselves the invisible image of God, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of God, except for Jesus. And God sent him to earth to be his light. Now, with all that I've said already, why does the world actually need a light? Well, as I've said before, the world is lost in darkness. But Jesus made an announcement in John chapter 8. He said to the people, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus called himself the light of the world, and he promised that those who became his followers would never have to be lost in spiritual darkness. He actually lays it out this way, very simply. He said, those who receive me as Savior will receive spiritual life, but those who reject me as Savior will continue to live in spiritual darkness. Right now, there are 7.28 billion people in the world, and there are an estimated 3 3 billion people that have never heard that Jesus Christ came to earth to die on a cross, to rise from the dead, to forgive them in their sins, and to rescue them from spiritual darkness. There's a lot of stats from church experts that will state that most of the world has truly never put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ to be their Savior. And those same stats will go on to tell you that Out of 322 million Americans, more than three of four do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, let me tell you what that means. It means that more than three quarters of our nation are living in spiritual darkness. 
It means that most of the world does not have the Holy Spirit of God actually living inside of them, leading them in any way, shape, or form. Most of the world is lost in darkness. Therefore, as followers of Christ, it should not surprise us at all when these dark, sinful things keep happening all around us. Now, let me give you a few interesting facts about darkness. Number one, darkness just loves darkness. Very simple. John chapter 3, verse 19 says, This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Those who, put, who do not believe and trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior, listen, they do not have neutral standing with God, and they certainly don't have a positive standing with God. The Bible says they've actually been judged by God, and they've been condemned to eternal separation from God. You say, how is that? Well, the light of God has come into the world. And he's offered everyone an opportunity to be actually delivered from spiritual darkness. But the Bible says that, that men love darkness more than light. As a result, they reject the light and they choose to do evil things. Then it goes on to say darkness has, actually has a fear of being exposed by the light. Verse 20 says, For everyone who does evil hates the light and, who, and, and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. I, I read a report recently from the U.S. Justice Department that three out of five crimes happen at night. You say, why is that? Well, because it's easier to get away with evil when there's no light. The, the last thing a criminal wants to have happen is to be exposed by light. But the Bible actually says that those who do evil in this world are not just going to reject Christ, they're going to actually hate him. They're not going to come to him because they don't want their sin to be exposed for what it is, which is just evil. They love evil and they hate the light. Now that's a very sobering reality of the world that we actually live in. But let me give you some good news about darkness. Darkness does not overcome the light. John 1.5 says, once again, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. See, even though we live with darkness all around us, the light of Christ is still shining in the darkness. As long as the light is here, listen, there's always hope. I got an email this past week um, from one of our missionaries in Cuba. Some of you may not know that we actually financially support over 300 church planters and pastors in Cuba. Actually, over 350 of them. And most of these guys are just doing amazing work under the radar because it's actually illegal to openly proclaim the gospel in Cuba. And the people that live there, as you know, have lived in oppression for a lot of years. But one of the pastors, and I'm not going to tell you his name for his own protection because I know that Fidel Castro listens to Westridge Church every Monday morning. <laughs> Probably not. But this guy actually pastors a church outside of Havana. And we actually pay his whole salary every year. And he sent us an email this past week that a missions team out of, went out of his church, uh, 21 out of his church, to a city that years and years ago had actually dedicated themselves to idols. And the churches in the city were just weak and anemic. But this pastor friend of ours told us that, that when they went there, they were able to lead 60 people to Jesus Christ. And they said that God moved so powerfully in this city of 11,000 that the churches were actually packed every single night they were preaching there. They had never been filled before. Listen, it doesn't matter where you go. Darkness does not overcome light. 
You talk about the city of Boston. The reason why we're going there is because these church planters are seeing people who have, some of them have, have no idea that they need Jesus Christ to be their Savior. And I know for some of us, when you pick up the paper or you, you turn on the internet, internet, it seems like the light's going out. But listen, as long as Jesus Christ is still sitting on the throne in heaven and the Holy Spirit is still present here on earth, the light of Christ will always be shining in the darkness. Always. I'm getting a little excited up here. But before I move on from the darkness, I, I feel like I need to address something. And I want to tell you this. This is, a, this is a major issue. This is a major problem. There are too many people who proclaim to be Christians who still walk in darkness. In other words, you claim to have the light of Christ inside of you, but your actions consistently say that you're still walking in darkness. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 and 6 talks about this. It says this, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we still walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. Now, I know that sounds very harsh, but here's the truth. Where there is light, there's going to be a lack of darkness. Where there is a relationship with light, there's going to be an absence of darkness. Darkness is actually the absence of light. And the Bible says that we're, if, if we're in true fellowship with the light, Jesus Christ, but yet we still continuously choose to walk in darkness, then the chances are we're lying and deceiving ourselves that we're actually Christians. Now, let me make this clear. Does that mean that, I, that, that if I sin, I'm not a Christian? No, that's not the case at all. If that were the case, we'd all be in trouble. But it does mean that if you continue to sin and it just doesn't bother you, it just, I mean, it, it just, there's no guilt at all. You just, matter of fact, you embrace the darkness. There's a chance you're fooling yourself about your relationship with Jesus Christ. However, if you are a Christian, I want you to listen to what the, what the Bible continues to say in 1 John. It says, if we walk in light... We're going to begin to grow and to become more like Jesus. And that light is going to continue to expose more and more sin in our life and more and more imperfections. And since the Bible says that God, and I love this, is slow to anger and he's abounding in persistent love towards us, he goes on in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, and he says, if we confess our sins, then he is faithful and he's just to forgive us of all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, that's good news. Because I still sin. I don't know about you. Actually, I do know about you. We all still sin. But thankfully, when I sin, it just eats me up inside. Because I don't want to hurt my relationship with God, and I certainly don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit that lives inside of me. I want to keep growing in my relationship with Jesus, and I want to sin less as I continue to grow. But the beauty is, when I sin, God says, confess it to me. Repent of your sin, which means to change your mind and turn away from it, and I promise you, I'm going to keep forgiving you and, and keep just cleaning you up inside. But listen, to say that you have the light of Christ inside of you, and you're totally embracing the darkness without any remorse, any guilt, any sorrow. There's just, I mean, you got to a place where it's just not even an issue anymore. It's just, it's, you're just all in. It's not just a major problem for you this morning. It is a catastrophic problem for you today. And I tell you that out of love. 
because I don't want any of you to miss out on what God has for you, what Jesus came to do to give his life for you. Listen, this world is lost in darkness. And what it needs is to see the light of Jesus actually shining in our lives. Not for us to be participating in the darkness. What the world needs to see is the real deal. In Matthew chapter 5 or 16, we are actually called to let our light shine before others so that our lives would point people to God. Now, some of you may be sitting here today thinking, well, what, what about this light? What could, wh- why should I embrace? What, what, what's, what's so important about this light? Why should I, why, what, what would the light of God do for me today? First of all, the light can bring you out of the darkness and actually give you light. John 12, 46 says, I have come as a light to shine in the dark world so that all who put their trust in me will no longer remain in darkness. One of the most amazing things about Christmas is this. God actually left heaven. He entered into the darkness of our world by taking on the form of a man so that he could make a way for us to escape from this dark world and to offer us eternal life. God sent Jesus, his only son, to suffer and to die and to bear the penalty for our sins. And he did that to make God's gift of eternal life available to anyone who would put their faith and trust in him alone to be their personal savior. And so if you are feeling lost in darkness, in the darkness of this world, and even in the darkness of your own sin, I want you to know that Jesus came as a light to lead you out of it towards eternal life. Don't reject that offer. The second thing is that light can serve as a guide for your life. One of the things that light does is, as you know, is it illuminates the darkness in front of you. If you've ever been caught in a car, a truck, or something like that, in a a blinding snow blizzard before, you know that your headlights sometimes are only going to allow you to see just a few feet in front of your car. But you also know that without those lights, you'd be in serious trouble if they just all of a sudden disappeared. You probably would drive off of a ditch or spin out like, like I've actually done before. But those lights, are they're guiding you to stay on the road. And sometimes life can feel like you are in a blinding blizzard. There are moments where you you just feel like you have no idea which direction to go in. You have no idea if you're actually even going in the right direction. And sometimes you you would just like for God to just verbally, audibly say something to you to point you in the right direction. Well, here's the truth. God gave us his word to serve as a guide for our lives. And we, when we read the Bible, the voice of God is actually speaking to us. Here's how the Bible describes it in Psalm chapter 119, 105. It says, your word is a lamp to my feet. It's a light to my path. Now, since God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit are one, and these, they wrote these words for us, they are all working together. It's all working together to guide us as we read this book. This book actually lights up the path in front of us and gives us clear direction. It serves as a guide. But I want to give you a caution. Darkness likes to disguise itself as light. One of the toughest things about being a parent today is the constant pressure of evaluating whether something is right or wrong, whether it's actually light or darkness. And what makes it even tougher sometimes is that a lot of times, darkness disguises itself as light. It does a very good job of it, and it's scary out there. And that's why, that's, that's why it's, it's so important it's, as parents that we are actually in the Word of God every day because through His Word, God not only has the ability to make, help you make wise decisions for your kids, but to help you to expose and to avoid the fake lights that are out there. 
As a pastor, I would be absolutely foolish to make decisions for this church without God's word guiding me. Why? Because there are all kinds of dark things in front of me that are disguised as light. You say, how do you know the difference? You put everything through the filter of God's word because it will expose the darkness. The light of God can also protect you from the darkness. Over the last several months, I've had many of you express to me how concerned you are and even how afraid you are of all of the things that are going around in the world today. There's no doubt. We're living in some crazy times. As I was getting myself prepared for this morning, last night, a little news flash popped up on my phone where a man had just stabbed three people in a London subway. It was a, calling it another terrorist attack. Listen, as a nation, we're, I know some of you, 2016, we're getting ready to head into another election year which is crazy in and of itself. And if you're a Democrat, it's really scary for you to think who could be the next president. If you're a Republican, it's really scary for you to think of who could be the next president. But listen to what the Bible says about the light of God Jesus. Psalm chapter 27, 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? So as followers of Jesus Christ, we don't have to walk through this life walking in fear. The Bible says he's our light. He's our rescuer. He's our salvation. He's our stronghold. And the writer of the Psalm, King David, goes on to say that in the midst of evil, he will, he will actually remain confident. And so as followers of Jesus Christ, our confidence doesn't rest in whoever the next elected official may be. And as wonderful as our military is, our confidence doesn't rest there. It rests in the Lord alone. And it grows as we watch God actually deliver us from one thing to the next. We realize, Lord, as you deliver me from one thing to the next, I can put my confidence alone in you because you're my stronghold. The light of God also, you can get excited. Come on. I'm getting excited. You get excited. The light of God is also our source of hope for the future. You know, hope is such an important element of life because when you have hope, you can keep going through whatever life brings to you. Hope is what gets you through dark times. And right now, listen, we live in a world where a lot of people just lost hope. For some people, the darkness is almost too much to bear. They're they're just ready to throw in the towel and give up. And yet we know as followers of Jesus Christ that we live with hope because in the midst of darkness, Jesus has come to us in the form of a great light. Let me read to you how God describes it. This is a prophecy that was written over 740 years before the birth of Jesus. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light is shown. Verse 7, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, when Isaiah gave this prophecy to the northern kingdom of Israel, they had just been invaded by a ruthless Assyrian king named Tiglath-Pileser III. Israel had just been overtaken by what would be today Syria and Iraq. You put them together, you have Assyria. However, Isaiah announced a word. He announced Noel, 
which means good news. He announced that one day soon, the people who were walking in darkness, they were going to see a great light, a light that would deliver the people from darkness, and he would be a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, and a prince of peace. And to these Israelites, that was a message of incredible hope. A Messiah was coming. A deliverer was on his way. Finally, a king would, would be able to lead them. Isaiah said a great light was, was, was in their horizon, a symbol of hope. But if you look more closely at that promise, you realize that this wasn't just a promise for Israel. This was, pro- this was a promise for all of mankind, Jew and Gentile alike. Listen, the great light of Jesus has come. And our hope lies in the fact that he's coming back. And when he comes back, listen, he will wipe away darkness forever and he will set up his government and there will be no end to his reign. That's our hope this morning. Jesus, the light of God, is our hope. And my question for you today is have you allowed the light of God to shine his light into your life and into your heart?